0: Good morning Desert Springs. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I've, um, I'm, I thank God for this church. I mean uh, since I've come to Albuquerque I've gotten to know Ryan and gotten to know a little bit about Desert Springs and I'm just thankful for the strong and faithful witness that you all give to the crucified and the risen Jesus and that's something that brings great glory to God. And so I'm thankful for you all, and, and I, I'm thankful personally for, for Ryan. You know, my, my family moved out here a little over a year ago from Southern California, and we lived about a half a block from the beach. And um, when I got here, people kept saying, you know, there's no beach in Albuquerque. And I said, yeah, I'm aware. I, I see the map. I know that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, coming out here, we missed the beach, but more significantly, we missed friends. And I was part of a staff where very close relationships with other pastors. And so it was really fantastic to come out here and to find out about the Gospel Coalition and about this network of pastors that were connected together and sought to stimulate and encourage one another on. And so I've been blessed to be a part of that. And so I'm thankful for Ryan and for the role that that he's played in seeing that launched and come to fruition. And uh, so, yeah, so I like your pastor. He's a good man. I think you should keep him. I don't, yes, give him a hand. So if you ever come to Hope, you've got to make sure my congregation claps for me, all right? You owe me big time right there, all right. You know, I noticed my time is already going, there's a big clock back there. You guys don't know this, but I'm just doing an intro right now, this isn't even part of the sermon yet, and the clock is already running. Chris, come on, man. All right. Why don't you uh, join with me in prayer and let's ask that God would illuminate our hearts and minds by his spirit as we look into his word. Father, many of us have walked in this morning from a wide variety of places. Some of us have come in and we look back on the past year and we feel a sense of depression and discouragement for the things that have happened perhaps we're even looking into this next year and we're wondering what this year holds, hoping it's not like the last. I pray, O God, that in your grace and in your goodness, you would meet them. Father, others who have come in this morning and they are full of joy and gratitude because they've seen your hand of goodness in their life over this past year. And we give you thanks and praise, O God, for your goodness to us. And we pray that your word would come to them this morning as a source of of fuel to the fire to continue to flame their own gratitude and their joy in you. Father, some might come in this morning and they do not yet know you. And I ask, O God, that you would be gracious and reveal yourself to them. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a few years ago, I had an unusual experience in a worship service that I was participating in. It was during the Advent season, and, you know, the season of Advent on the church calendar, it's that season of waiting. And we remember Israel in exile waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And the church today still waits for Jesus to come again. So it's that season of waiting on the church calendar. And when we walked in the sanctuary that morning, we were handed a card, And during the service, we were invited to take that card and to write down on that card something that we had been waiting upon God to do in our lives. So some wrote things like, I'm waiting on God to bring home my prodigal son or to heal the cancer or to bring freedom from the addiction or to bring me a husband to give us a child to heal the depression, to provide a job. We were invited to take these longings and to write them down. And then as we exited the sanctuary that morning, there was a great big tree in the lobby. And we were invited to hang those cards upon the tree to bring to speech and then to make public these very dark and discouraging longings in our heart. Over the next couple of weeks in the worship services, they then took those comments that were written on these cards and they projected them in the worship service on the slides as we were singing songs. So on those slides were psalms about folks that were waiting upon God, interspersed with comments from our own congregation about how they were waiting upon God to move into work in their life. And I have to say that the whole experience was very refreshing. Because, you know, often in church, these are not the kind of things we bring to speech and make public. Often the stories that we ask people to tell, the testimonies that we share in the worship services are those stories of God's grace. And rightly so, because stories of God's grace bring us joy and gratitude, right? And so we we tell stories about how we were once lost, but now we're found. How the marriage was broken, but now it's fixed. How the prodigal was gone, but now they've come home. But you know... There are other stories, stories that are often left unspoken. And these stories are often deeper and darker, more painful stories. Stories of unmet expectations, of unanswered prayers, of hopes disappointed. And you know, as we gather here this morning, here and now, in this place, both of those stories are present, aren't they? You could stand up probably this morning and share testimony of God's grace what God has done in your life. There are many others this morning who could stand up and share stories of deep pain and sorrow in their own life, of where God has not done what they wanted him to do, that they've been asking him to do. Very often, these are the kind of stories that evoke questions in our hearts, questions like, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to do something? How long do I have to wait for this child to come home? When are you going to bring me a spouse When are you going to heal my loved one? God, when? How long? And they can evoke doubts. If God is good, then why doesn't he do something? God, when are are you going to do something? Are you good? this This morning, we're going to look at a story from the book of Exodus that is that kind of story. You know, very often when we turn open our Bibles, we discover stories of folks who begin in a place of doubt, And then they see the powerful action of God. And they're moved then from a place of doubt to a place of faith. This story is just the opposite. In this story, we find the people of God and they begin in a place of faith. But as they see God's inaction, they move to a place of doubt. The story is found in Exodus chapter 5. And if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Exodus chapter 5. Now, let's set this story in context. Exodus begins, of course, with Israel enslaved and oppressed under the tyrannical Pharaoh. And they're suffering under this murderous tyrant. And they cry out to God in their agony and in their pain. And their cry is noticed. And God hears their cry. And God remembers his promise. And God begins to act upon their behalf. And he calls a deliverer, Moses, who was raised in the courts of Pharaoh, but then moved out into the, the desert. And God meets, Pharaoh, or God, God meets Moses, not Pharaoh, in the desert, in a burning bush. And he puts a call on Moses' life to go to Pharaoh. Think about this call. He says, go to the most powerful man on the face of the earth and tell him he needs to let his entire free labor force go free. Now, Moses does what many of us would do if we were confronted with such a terrifying call. He rejects it. He says, no, God, I can't do this. And he's full of self-doubt. I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I, you know, I can't do this, God. They're not going to listen to me. God addresses all his fears, and Moses finally, reluctantly, but obediently goes. God, of course, sends Aaron along with him. Their first stop when they get to Egypt is to call together the children of Israel and to tell them about God's listening ear and his faithfulness to his covenant. So they gathered together all of the people of Israel. And chapter 4, verse 29, tells us about this gathering. It says in chapter 4, verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went, and they gathered all the elders of the people of Israel together. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And did all the signs in front of the people. Moses at first thought, look, when we get there, they're not going to listen. They're going to think we're nuts. But they get there, and the children of Israel respond fantastically. Look at what it says in verse 31. The people heard this good news, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Things are looking great. They hear the word, they believe, they trust, they celebrate, they worship. In chapter 6, verse 9, though, we see that Israel is in a different place. Notice what it says in verse 9. Once again, Moses comes and speaks all that the Lord had spoken to him, all the promises of God. And this time, time the reception is frigid. Moses, verse 9 says, spoke thus to the people of Israel, And they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. The story begins in this tremendous faith. It ends in doubt. And this is not uncommon. Perhaps you began this last year, 2011, with tremendous faith. Perhaps you ended this year struggling with doubt. Perhaps you began your Christian life. Maybe the first 10 years of your Christian life, it was just full of joy and gratitude. It was wonderful. But right now, quite frankly, you're in a place of disorientation because you wonder where God is at. Why isn't he doing what you want him to do, what you're expecting him to do? This is Israel. They're in a place of doubt. And so we ask the question, what happened between these two moments of faith and doubt? Chapter 5 and 6 narrates the story of what happened. And I want to invite you this morning to enter into this narrative with me and to enter into this drama and perhaps discover, if you're struggling with doubt in any way, shape, or form, a word that might bring you hope. Notice where the drama begins. It begins with Moses and Aaron boldly confronting Pharaoh. Verse 1 says, After Moses, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh. You wonder how they felt when they began to go into the presence of Pharaoh. I mean, they're going into the courts of the most powerful man on the face of the planet, straight out of the desert. They don't look very impressive, not dress very impressive. And they walk right into these courts. Perhaps they, were, they went in with a little bit more boldness because of the reception from Israel. They thought, well, hey, they liked it. Maybe... Maybe this thing's going to work after all. This crazy plan that God put me on, maybe it'll work. And so they boldly and defiantly tell Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The way this is framed in the Hebrew, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh as an inferior. Pharaoh is not used to being spoken to as an inferior. And his response is predictable, verse 3. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So they change tactics. Pharaoh's not listening. He's not responsive. Take two, they try a more modest approach. And look at what it says in verse 3. Instead of saying, let my people go, they say, why don't you just let us go for three days out into the wilderness? Look at what it says in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us, go. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may offer sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Of course, Pharaoh once again is dismissive, but now he's angry because now they've confronted him twice. And in his anger, he issues a terrible decree. Look at what it says in verse 5. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you, Mr. Moses and Aaron, you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they were made in the past You shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And that's why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Well, as the story continues, this terrible decree of Pharaoh is enacted over the children of Israel. Look at what it says in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Have you ever had a dehumanizing job? I can remember years ago, my very first job, I was a busboy at a diner. And I remember one day the boss came into the diner And you know when the boss is there, you want to look a little bit more busy than usual, right? Unfortunately, the restaurant was dead that night. And there was very little I could do to look busy. And so he looked at me, you know, this little 15-year-old punk surfer kid. And I think he wanted to humiliate me or something. But he told me I needed to go to the parking lot across the street that was not even owned by the restaurant. And he said, I want you to go and pick up every little scrap of trash that's there. Now, this restaurant was on a main drag. It's on PCH, Pacific Coast Highway, and all my surfing buddies would drive down, and they could see me, and I got my little goofy hat on and looked like a total dork, you know? And it felt totally dehumanizing and humiliating. Now, look, I know it's completely trite and probably out of place to try to compare my experience with the children of Israel, but imagine. They're frantically, frenetically, Searching all the land of Egypt for these little scraps of straw so that they can meet their quota of bricks. I mean, these are people who are working 14, 16 hour days already. They're slaves. And they're required to make the same quota of bricks, but they're not given the resources to do so. Their life has gone from bad to worse. It's horrible. And so notice how they respond. I guess the way the labor force was organized in Egypt was the Egyptians had put certain Jews as foremen over the people. And the foremen were required to make sure the people of Israel were keeping to their quota of bricks. The foremen were sensitive to Israel, but they were also fearful of the commands of Pharaoh. And they hear this edict to make the same number of bricks, and they just think, this is unjust. And so they boldly and courageously go and they speak truth about injustice to power. And they go before, you know, tyrannical, powerful Pharaoh and they rebuke him. Look at what it says in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and they cried out to Pharaoh. They said, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold... Your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Now, Pharaoh responds predictably. And he looks back at them and he says, look, you're just lazy. He says in verse 17, but he said, you are idle. You are idle. And that is why you say, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. Now, at this point, how is Israel feeling about their courageous leaders, Moses and Aaron? Not good. I mean, think about this. Moses and Aaron have recklessly gone to Pharaoh and spoken these reckless words. And as a result, their life has become miserable. It is the fault of Moses and Aaron that their life has become miserable. So they're understandably angry. And so on their way out of the courts of Pharaoh, they run into Moses and Aaron, these foremen. And look at what the text says. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stench in the nostrils of Pharaoh and his servants and have put the sword in their hand to kill us. What's wrong with you guys? Now, how does Moses and Aaron respond? I mean, Moses, the man of God, the man of faith, who has responded courageously, obediently to the call of God on his life, how does he respond? Does he turn to the children of Israel and say, don't worry, God is faithful. Trust God. No, he doesn't say a word to them. Instead, he turns to God and he takes this accusation that was hurled at him and now he takes it and throws it at God. Look at what it says in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Those are strong words, are they not? Why have you, God, done evil to this people? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, how does God now respond to Moses? Now, if you're God, and none of you are, how would you respond? Well, you might take your big thumb and just squish this defiant little human being. How dare you speak to the ruler of the universe like this? It's a justifiable question, isn't it? But notice God instead responds with his full and gracious and compassionate and merciful and faithful self. And he reaffirms his promise to Moses. Chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God says, Moses, I hear what Israel is suffering, and I have not forgotten the promise I made. I will let the people go. And then he tells Moses to take this good promise and to reassert the promise on unbelieving, doubting Israel right now. Look at what it says in verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you will know that I, the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from out underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, I bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God reasserts his promise to his doubting people. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Seven times, I will. Redeem, deliver, rescue, take you to be my own, bring you into the land. But how does Israel respond? Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Sometimes, in the midst of our pain and our difficulty that has become so big in our minds, it is hard to hear the good promises of God. Have you been there? That's where Israel is. So as we stand back and we look at this story, I just want to make three observations about what we see here. The first observation is this. In our story, God seems absent. He is there in word only, but it doesn't seem like the actions are backing up the words. Now, soon enough, God is going to make a grand entrance into Egypt. I mean, soon enough, neither Pharaoh, nor Moses, nor Israel, nor Egypt will be able to ignore the powerful and judging and rescuing presence of the God of Israel. I mean, soon enough, voices will thunder, plagues will be wrought, seas will be parted, armies will be crushed, and Israel will dance and sing, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I mean, soon enough, even hard-hearted Pharaoh will not be able to deny that Israel's God must be dealt with and that this God wills life and will overturn Pharaoh's decree of death. Soon enough, but not yet. Not in our story. In our story, everything seems to happen on Pharaoh's terms, doesn't it? I mean, Pharaoh has his way And God's word looks ineffective. Moses and Aaron and Israel are hung out to dry. I mean, things go from bad slavery to worse bricks without straw. And let's just press this further. This is radical injustice. I mean, they've done nothing to deserve this. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can handle it when things go wrong in my life as a result of my own stupidity. Uh, I was driving home from Long Beach, California over Thanksgiving. I was driving through Arizona, and, you know, you're on a decline, right? And you just get going real fast after about eight hours in the car with four children. Um, you just need to get home. And I was going fa- I mean, I was going way too fast. I don't like to tell my church things like this, so don't tell anyone. Um, but I got pulled over, got smacked with a big ticket, and look, I felt like an idiot, And I didn't complain. I knew I deserved it. You know, I did something stupid, and so I was suffering. But what's hard is when it doesn't seem like you've done anything, and you're suffering. And what makes that even worse is if growing up in church, at some point along the way, you picked up the if-then equation. You know what I mean by that? If you do the right things and you're obedient, you're a good little Christian, then God will take care of your life and make sure everything happens right for you. So if you're pure and you just wait for that perfect guy, God will bring him in his perfect time. If you pray hard enough, God will bring home that prodigal. If you just read your Bible every day and you meditate on the promises of God, the depression will go away. But what happens when you do all of the ifs And the then doesn't follow. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. And what's more is, look, they are not suffering in spite of their obedience. They suffer in our story because of Moses' obedience. It's not in spite of their suffering because he was obedient. He was brave and courageous, and now it's horrible. And what makes it even worse is, in some ways, it looks totally arbitrary. I mean, do you ever find yourself trying to find a one-to-one correlation between what you're suffering in life and the good that God wants to bring out of it? You know, because those well-meaning people, when you're really suffering, come and tell you, don't worry, everything is going to work together for the good, and you want to hit them. Um, (laughs) But you can seek to find a one-to-one correlation. I got in a car accident, but that was because God wanted to give me a new car. You know, I've been single for all these years, but that's because God wanted me to have a wonderful ministry to young single ladies, you know? I, I I lost my keys so I didn't hit the traffic and the accident or whatever. But look, for so much, so much of our suffering, you can find no one-to-one correlation. You can't make any sense of it. Are you with me? I mean, I remember watching my grandmother suffer and I mean my grandmother faithful faithful follower of Jesus all of her life she gets to the end of her life and she spends weeks going through this excruciatingly painful death of bone cancer and you just think why why that what good is coming out of that and quite frankly it just looks arbitrary don't get me wrong I'm not saying that it is arbitrary. God rules this world in his fatherly care. And you can trust in God's goodness. But what I am saying is that sometimes it looks arbitrary. So here's my point if you are a Christian, you will suffer. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will suffer. Sometimes because you are obedient to Jesus, you will suffer. Jesus put it like this. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Paul said, you must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You know, the Christian life is like marriage in this way. How you experience marriage has everything to do with the expectations you bring into marriage, right? I mean, if you think that marriage is just going to be, you know, warm walks on spring evenings with roses and flowers and everything proceeding like it was your first six months of dating, you're wrong, right? If you go in expecting it, I mean, I almost think, I've done a lot of premarital counseling over the last few weeks. I did a wedding yesterday, a wedding the day before, I do a wedding next week. And, and you know, my, my whole approach to premarital counseling is just to recalibrate expectations. You know, when people are engaged, they're just lost. <laughs> right? You know, you, almost, you just need to correct them. You're not thinking rightly about this. You know, in some sense, Christianity 101 needs to have that same kind of element. Recalibrate the expectations. If things are going bad in your life right now, don't think that somehow, you know, your Christian life is defunct or bad. You are living a normal Christian life. This Is what Christians have experienced for the last 2,000 years. This is what the people of God have experienced since Abraham. This is what we're in for trials, tribulations, suffering. I guess that's bad news. Happy New Year. (laughs) 2012 may be the worst year of your entire life. I hope you enjoy. Let's pray. But there is good news. And it's in this story. You will suffer. But listen, God suffers with his people. God, in our story, is not on the side of comfortable, cush life, wealthy, opulent Pharaoh. God, the creator of all things, is on the side of the enslaved and the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor. God says, I am not immune to your pain and suffering. I have heard the cries. My heart is like a magnet to your pain. I am not unaware. The children of Israel had no idea. Just how far God would go to suffer with his people. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Know this, when you suffer, you are not alone. And you do not turn to a God who is immune to human pain and suffering you can turn to the good and faithful creator who has walked among us and suffered alongside of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was in prison just a few weeks before his execution, he wrote these words to a friend. He said, only the suffering God can help. There are times in your life where only, only the suffering God can help. But the good news is that this is who our God is. He is the God who has made himself known to us in Jesus. I think my favorite sections of all of the Chronicles of Narnia is in the first volume, The Magician's Nephew. And the the key actor in the narrative, Diggory, he has a mother who's suffering, who's on the deathbed. When he meets Aslan, he thinks, Surely this lion has the power to heal my mother. And he was trying to come up with these different ways in which he could manipulate or coerce Aslan to get his mother healed. Aslan, though, puts a call on Diggory's life. And Diggory thinks, Well, maybe I'll tell him I'll do it if he does something for me. And here's how the story goes He had, for a second, some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother. And he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came into his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, But please, please, won't you? Can't you do something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. And now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. And he saw, what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if his mother must really, as if the lion must really be sorry about his mother, than he was himself. My son, my son," said Aslan, "I know, grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. When you look up to God. You do not see a God who is unsympathetic, who does not weep with his people. You see a God you can entrust your full self, your full sorrow, your full pain to. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews tells us, but one who is tempted in every point as we are and yet without sin. And so let us draw near to the throne of grace with boldness to find help ...and receive mercy in our time of need. So first observation, God in our story seems absent. Second observation, Moses struggles with doubt. Now, Moses is in the hall of faith. I mean, Moses is this great man of faith. Hebrews tells us that he did not consider the wealth and the opulence of Egypt as something that was wanting to cling. He'd say, let go of it instead so he could suffer alongside of the people of God. God approached him, gave him this frightening, terrible mission. Moses obeyed, and he went on it. Moses is a great man of faith. And yet, know well in our story, Moses doubts. Now, Moses is not the first great man of faith who doubts. Abraham doubted God. Elijah doubted God. David doubted. Have you read the Psalms? Yes? (laughs) Look, and if these great men of faith doubt God, let me ask you this. How do you think you're going to do? In my experience in the church, Christians oftentimes respond to their doubts and their questions in one of two ways. And look, it's very understandable that we would have doubts that creep up. Because look, like Israel, we live right now in between times, between the promise made and the promise fulfilled. God has acted and he has been victorious over sin and death and darkness through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But we wait for the day when his victory will be implemented in all of creation. And in between the times, creation groans and the church groans. We struggle with loneliness, with with children that have left us and have said hurtful things to us and have not come back, with marriages that are falling apart. So what do you do with your doubts? Very often in the church, people on the one hand will pretend that they're not there, My wife said to me, she said, you know, sometimes I really like going to Savers more than I like going to church. I'm sorry, this is. But she said, I like going to Savers more than I like going to church because at least Savers, you feel like you've got real people that are honest. She was being facetious, all right. I had another friend at my church who, um, you know, she has a real sword past. And she said, you know, sometimes I feel more comfortable at an AA meeting than I do at church. Because at least at the AA meeting, people are honest about where they're at. Church is not a place to pretend. God can see you anyway. And you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are just like you. We're all a mess. I mean, I'm a pastor, I struggle with doubts. I'm a mess. Ryan, man, have you, this guy's a mess. On the other hand, and perhaps because people feel like they can't really be emotionally and intellectually honest, when they do struggle with doubts, they feel like their only thing to do is to walk away. Well, God didn't do this. I'm just going to walk away. Please don't do that. Listen, do what Moses did and take your doubts to God and bring them to speech in the presence of God. You've talked about lament, I imagine, in the Psalms. Pray the psalms of lament when you're struggling. Bring them to speech in the presence of the only one who can do something about them. And do you see what God does with Moses? He reasserts his good promise. He says, I will. You can trust me. And you can trust him. God seems absent. Number two, Moses struggles with doubt. Number three, God is Present. You know, in our story, in one level, it looks like God's action is missing. But if you go back to chapter 4, you see that God had this plan in mind. He, he goes and he tells Moses in chapter 4, go to Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And throughout the book of Exodus, God is working on both sides of the street, as it were. He's multiplying wonders, and he's at work hardening Pharaoh's heart. You say, well, that's so unkind. Why would God harden his heart? Poor Pharaoh. Oh, really? Poor Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh who's been a murderous dictator and tyrant, who's been oppressing God's, the one who God names my firstborn. God enacts a judicial act of hardening on Pharaoh. And you see throughout the Exodus narrative, beginning in chapter five, God working behind the scenes in Pharaoh's life, exerting a judicial hardening on him. And it gets to the point where, Moses, where Pharaoh is so hardened that God brings judgment and takes the life of Pharaoh's firstborn so that God's own firstborn children could go free. God's fatherly passion for his firstborn is that strong. And you say, well, thanks, that's real encouraging to me right now. I I don't know, maybe it is. Maybe it's not, but I know that this is. Years later, God would act once again, involving a firstborn. Only this time, God would not exert an act of judgment and take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn. Instead, God, in stunning love, would give his firstborn. God would come in Christ and would bear in Christ his own wrath and judgment against our sin because his fatherly passion for his firstborn is that strong. His fatherly passion and concern and love for you is that strong. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely and graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and he's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, in all of creation, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is very, very good news.